We are doing a little series looking at three, so far, three remarkable individuals who are all Nazarites. They are all individuals who have been dedicated to God from their birth. And uh, each time we've looked at these persons' lives and we're looking at kind of, essentially we're looking at their lives as an example of what it means to be dedicated or devoted to God. And tonight we're looking at John the Baptist. And we've looked at a couple of kind of episodes in his life, the announcement of his birth, um, and, now we, and then we looked at him, his preparation for ministry. And tonight, I want to look at really his, the bulk of his ministry, uh, his message, his work among the people of God. And really, I want you to see his call. His, the essence of his message is a really simple one. And it might sound like the kind of message that is just for those who are coming into the Christian life. And yet I want to suggest to you that this is a lesson that we never grow old of. And it's really simple. It's Christ is calling you to comprehensive surrender. The message that we are going to unpack today as we look at John's life is Christ is calling you to comprehensive surrender. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 3, I want to read to you... uh, Verses 1 to 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and these words then go on to describe John's ministry, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh All flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ or the Messiah, 
John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would just come and speak to us this evening, that we would be those with our hearts open to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that you would come and move amongst us, Lord, that you would come and reveal yourself as we open your word, as we hear your voice, Lord. I pray that the church would respond to your voice this evening. You come and have your way amongst us. Even as we open this word, Lord, we just surrender to you now and ask that you would come and reshape your people, reshape our hearts. Amen. The year is AD 29. Tiberius is the emperor seated in Rome. Herod is the tetrarch seated in Galilee in the region of northern Israel. Pilate is the governor or prefect of the whole region. But the main event of that year is taking place away from these palaces and these exalted rulers... The main event in world history in that moment is taking place in the Judean wilderness. As a man of no rank or authority, John the Baptist, who if you were to see him, you would just think, here is another wilderness dweller wearing a kind of sack as a, as a, like a, made of camel hair. Uh, he would look of no importance or authority, is calling out a voice in the wilderness. And his His call is really simple. He says, prepare the way. Prepare yourselves for the coming king. The coming messianic king is coming to establish God's kingdom on this earth. So you must prepare yourself. And against the odds, his ministry has a profound effect on his community. In fact, um, Matthew, in his gospel, in a kind of parallel, parallel account, describes how Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region was going out to him. It's a bit like if I said, all of London was gathered in Hyde Park. You can imagine the crowds are thronging to the Judean wilderness. And as they do that, there are, there are many, many queued up, waiting for John to baptize them to literally immerse them in the River Jordan as a mark of their repentance. John is calling for a kind of cleansing of the Jewish people in preparation for their arrival of their king. You hear this, his role, you've got to understand, if you're going to understand anything about John, you've got to see that his role is one of preparing the way for Christ. Did you you see in... um, the middle of the passage we're reading, the quote from Isaiah, he's described as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You've got to imagine John is like the motorbike at the front of a kind of presidential motorcade. You may have been, seen this at different places, and I've seen it in London a few times, where um, you're cycling through and suddenly police on their motorbikes uh, come to the junction and they just kind of wave aggressively at everyone to stop and as they do so, every, the traffic's all stopped and then the Prime Minister, whoever's in the, the marked car, you can't even see because the, the windows are, are black, um, then drives through. 
and the sense to which John is like the motorbike at the front of that motorcade, preparing the people for the arrival of the king who is coming behind him. And as I say, the one preparing the way, it would be easy to think of him being a little bit like, um, you know, say you've been at work and you're all kind of on Facebook or whatever, you know, like looking at travel plans, like you're not working, the boss is away, and then suddenly the, the boss, you know the, the boss is coming back, and someone in the team says, quick, look busy, the boss is coming, and everyone kind of minimizes their window and starts working away <laughs> and pretends that they were, they were working all that time. It's not like that. <laughs> Some of you know that well. <laughs> It's exactly the opposite of that. John is not saying, quick, look busy, the king is coming. John is saying, no, the king is arriving. Surrender yourself to him. Turn your whole life around. Repent, that's what it means, to turn around and prepare yourself for the arrival of the king of the universe, effectively. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, uh, John's ministry is summed up with this one line, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do we mean by that? The repent, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And really what it speaks of is, Christ comes, Jesus, the Messiah, comes, establishing the kingdom of God. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? You think about the kingdom, you think about the United Kingdom, or the kingdom of Bahrain, for example. The kingdom of God is not a geographic place. The kingdom of God is everywhere where Christ is recognized as king. The kingdom of God is where Christ is recognized as king. It speaks of the fact that Jesus comes to establish his rule and his authority in the hearts of men and women everywhere. And that begins with his physical ministry, but it continues after he goes back to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ establishes a kingdom that grows and grows as more and more millions around the world come to recognize Christ as king. And John is saying, repent, turn around, for the kingdom is here. The Messiah has come. Turn around and recognize his authority. What it says is right at the center of the Christian life is a very simple proposition. That Jesus cannot just be your friend. He cannot just be your saviour, the one who died for your sake. That Jesus, in his essence, is demanding an authority relationship with you. That as he comes, he cannot be taken as just uh, one who would give you advice, but he must be the Lord of your life. And John's message is really quite simple. Comprehensively surrender your life to Christ's rule recognize him as king. I know some of you here are not Christians, and really at its essence, I want you to hear, even this evening, Jesus' personal invitation to you, that he would say, come and recognize that I am not just some wandering Jewish teacher who spake truth into the world that would go and transform Western civilization and much of the world. Instead, come and hear that I am the rightful Lord of your life that I am the one who was made, that you were made for me, sorry, to, be, to allow me, to welcome me as the rightful ruler of your life. That is the message that Jesus would speak to each one of you here. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear that. But this is not just something for Christians. The, the call to comprehensively surrender your life to recognize the lordship of Christ in every aspect of your life is something that we as Christians need to hear again and again and again. 
This is the perpetual posture of the Christian who cries, your kingdom come, Lord, not just outside in the world today, although we do pray that. We do pray his kingdom comes and shapes and reshapes the lives of the people around us, but your kingdom come in me. Would you come and take full dominion over every area of my life, of my working life, of my thought life, of my relationships, of my, my family? Would you come and have dominion over every area of my life? That is the call of the Christian in, in perpetuity, again and again and again. And I want to really unpack for you what John is saying. What does it mean to comprehensively surrender your life to him? What does it mean for Christ to be the king of your life? And I really want to show you three aspects from John's message today. One, it means genuine comprehensive repentance. I want to show you what it means to repent. It means to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. And it means to have the full vision of the majesty and the grandeur of the person of Christ. I want to show you each of those aspects from John's life. So the first one, the first message that John would give us as to what does it mean to comprehensively surrender your life to Christ it first and foremost means genuine repentance. It means, are you willing to allow Christ to come in and reorder every area of your life? Jesus, John's primary message to the people of Israel and to us is, will you repent? Will you turn to God and surrender to his rule? And to welcome Christ is to constantly surrender to his voice and welcome his change in your life. And so we need to ask, are you continuing to open up every nook and every cranny of your life, every part of your life to Christ? Here, the essence of John's ministry is found in this uh, verse 3, in the middle of our passage. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And really what's going on there is... John is calling the nation to turn around, to repent. And as a mark of their repentance, he is leading them in this, really, this, uh, this practice of baptism. You can imagine them being fully immersed in the River Jordan. And what is he going on here? What is baptism? Well, baptism is, for a Christian, the primary marker, the first, almost the, the way into the Christian life, in the sense of it is the public declaration that Christ is the Lord of your life. And a declaration that you have died to your old life. And that's why we see someone being lowered into the water as a marker of death to their old life. And then coming out of the water as a marker of the fact that they have received new life with Christ. And you'll see again and again through the New Testament, the baptism is, is affirmed as the mark that someone has become a disciple of Christ. But in this case, we see John doing something slightly different. John is speaking about a baptism of repentance. And in the Jewish practice at the time, uh, this was something that you would have to do if you were not Jewish, you were Gentile, uh, and you were coming into the Jewish community, and effectively, as, as a mark of your conversion, you would be uh, immersed in water as a kind of mark of your cleansing, and then your membership as part of the covenant community. Interesting note here that, that John is effectively saying this is not just for those who are coming out, that everyone, the whole nation, needs to be cleansed. But the real question this raises is, what is repentance? 
If he's saying this is a baptism, this is a ceremony that marks your repentance, what is he calling for when he calls them to repent as a baptism, as a mark of their repentance? And I think the problem is that often our vision of repentance is too small. We think of repentance as being sorry for things you've done wrong. Well, no, it's much more than just being sorry because it must involve change, a turnaround, a change of your life. It's, uh, sometimes we think of repentance as just recognizing that you're flawed. And I think the reality is that surely everyone at some level recognizes that they are flawed and they have made mistakes. You'd have to be a psychopath not to recognize that you are flawed at some level. So repentance is much more than that. We might say, and I think often Christians think of repentance as cutting out a few bad habits, perhaps the, the very obvious sins of your life, of saying, well, I, if I'm a Christian, I know I need to cut that out or cut that out. But even that doesn't really do justice to repentance. What you've got to see is that repentance is about a comprehensive change. It's about a 180-degree turn from the utterly different direction to the one that you're running in before to turn around, to change your mind, to turn towards God. One writer, one commentator on this passage described it as a radical change of mind and heart, a radical change of mind and heart that leads to a complete turnaround of your life. And what I want you to see is that none of you are above this. Some of you have been Christians for many years. You say, well, no, I, I repented when I came to faith. I turned around from various things, and that's it, surely. That's my repentance done. No, no, no. You see, even in this passage, they are complacent. They say, we don't need this baptism of repentance. We're the children of Abraham. Don't you see who we are? Well, we, why would we need to repent? Don't you know our heritage? Some of you say, well, don't you know my heritage? I've been following Christ for 20 years. I don't need to repent. No, repentance is a perpetual, ongoing process in the Christian life of regularly opening up your life and allowing Christ to come in and reorder you from the outward external actions to your heart and to your mind. The repentance is an ongoing practice in the Christian life. And I think John really is reshaping our vision of repentance. I want to give you a few ideas that we see in John's vision of repentance. The first thing that John is teaching us is your repentance must be genuine. Your repentance must be genuine. Have you noticed in verse 7, he says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And what is the picture that you need to have in your mind when he says, You brood of vipers, you brood of snakes, is you can imagine um, a fire breaking out in a forest. And as you see that fire break out, the animals scatter, they move, and and the vipers kind of quickly disperse away from the danger. And the picture that John is saying is, look, some of you have come here because you're aware that the king is coming. You're aware that the righteous ruler, Jesus Christ, is coming. And in order to, you're aware that he comes with judgment. And so you are coming here as a way of trying to avoid the judgment that's coming. And really, you haven't changed. There's no fruit in your life. You're still a viper. You're just running away from the judgment. You're coming to this. You remember, they're coming to be baptized in the River Jordan. They're going through this baptism just as a way of kind of publicly ticking the box, as a kind of way of, on the outside, superficially appearing to repent, but on the inside, they haven't changed. They're still snakes. And what it speaks to is the fact that there will be some, and I wager just by the law of averages, there are some in this room this evening who go through the motions of the Christian life, who perhaps go to church, 
Or perhaps even they raise their hands in worship. But it's all superficial. They haven't surrendered their whole life to Christ. There's not a change of who they are. The repentance they speak of, it's superficial. It's lip service. It reminds me of Ananias and Sapphira. They make this kind of great show of generosity in Acts chapter 5. They, they, try, they pretend to have given away their, all their possessions, but they haven't. It's superficial. And if you remember from Acts chapter 5, they, they fall down dead as a moment of judgment. And the same message that, that you would have heard from their lives, which is God is not mocked by your superficial acts of religiosity, is the same message here. John would say, you can, the living God sees the reality of your heart. You can say the right things and you can go to church and you can go through the religious motions. You can show, you can have a superficial veneer of Christianity, but if it has not come to comprehensively reorder your life, well, it's, it's, it's pointless. Why? You can hear at the end of the passage, he speaks of Christ coming as the one with the winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is Jesus coming, the ultimate judge, who can see into men's hearts, who knows the reality of what's going on. He will not be fooled by your spiritual pretense. You might be able to convince the person next to you that you've repented, but you cannot convince Christ unless you are genuinely repenting. It's such a terrible place to be, to think that you're a Christian, to think that you've repented, to even pay lip service to this religiosity, but actually not be walking really genuinely with Christ, to not be walking in a posture of repentance, because you're giving yourself false comfort. The judge is coming, and one day he will separate wheat from the chaff, sheep from the goats, and your pretense of religiosity will not save you. Only genuine faith and full, wholehearted surrender to Christ is enough. Do not settle for a pretense of spirituality. You need genuine repentance. Second of all, your repentance must be evidenced in your life by fruit. Notice he says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then later on in verse 9, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying, if you have genuinely repented, if you have genuinely surrendered your whole life to Christ, then that must be visible from the, from the nature of your life. Think about fruit. Fruit is fundamentally visible. You can see it. Again, in Matthew chapter 7, I believe, Jesus is speaking about false teachers and, and, and um, the opposite. And in it, he describes, uh, he said, you will be able to tell them by the fruit of their lives. It's something that is observable. So what is the fruit that we should expect to observe in your life? If you're a follower of Christ, I, the primary fruit we should expect to see if you're a follower of Christ is love. The fruit of love. I think you can even see that in these verses. When he says in verse 10 to 11, what then should we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share them with, with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise saying that there will, be a, there will be a new generosity in your life as a marker of the repentance. In effect, he's saying, you, we will see the genuineness of your vertical relationship with God by the change in how you relate to the people around you. And that will start by how you relate to the church. That if you've truly received the love of Christ, 
If you've truly come to believe in the sacrificial love of Christ that we've been singing about, it will, it must reshape the way you relate to the people around you. It's not just this passage that would give me that basis. Look at uh, James chapter 2. James is making a very similar point about the necessity that your faith must be accompanied by works for us to believe that that faith is genuine. He said this is chapter 2, verse 14 of James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, basically gives them a nice bit of spiritual words but doesn't actually help them, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Does your faith have works, brothers and sisters? If someone was to look at your life without the fact that you went to church, if someone was just to kind of take a, a, a video reel of your life and observe you, would they see a different, distinctive life? Because I think what, Je- what John would have us believe here is that you're, if you've repented, if you've surrendered your life, we will see that in your life in tangible ways. Perhaps most notably in the way that you love the people around you. And that starting with the church, your brothers and sisters, but be going beyond that. And if you have an indifference, if you have a complete lack of love for the people around you, then we would start to question whether the faith that you profess is real. Spurgeon, um, C.H. Spurgeon, who was a, a Baptist preacher in the 1800s, uh, became... Is, <laughs> deeply concerned about this sense of indifference, this sense of a lack of love in his church. And remember, Victorian Victorian London was a a place of poverty and squalor. And many people in his church were in need, but he was concerned that there were others in his church that had deep indifference to the needs of their brothers and sisters. And his point is, if they are your brothers and sisters, you should not and cannot be indifferent to their needs. And this is what he said. You may talk about your religion till you have worn your tongue out. You may get others to believe you, and you may remain in the church 20 years, and nobody ever detect in you anything like an inconsistency. So you've got all the right beliefs, you say all the right things, people around you say, oh, it's all, it's based all consistent, but if it be in your power, and you do nothing to relieve the necessities of the poor members of Christ's body, you will be damned as surely as if you were drunkards or whoremongers. If you have no care for God's church, this text applies to you and as will surely sink you to the lowest hell as if you had been common blasphemers. If you have no care for God's church, if you profess love for Christ but don't love your brothers and sisters, he's saying, your faith's not genuine, faith's not real. Is there fruit in your life? Can we see the love of Christ work its way out in your life? Thirdly, your repentance must affect the secular parts of your life. Isn't it interesting that John is expecting, he's requiring that their repentance work its way out, not just in their, what you might call the sacred parts of their life, but in the secular parts of their life. And what I mean by this, the sacred secular is, sometimes Christians divide their lives into the sacred, into their prayer, into their evangelism, into their time in the church, and they kind of consider that sacred. And then they consider secular. What does secular mean? Well, it kind of means without God. And you think about their work or their friendships, and they divide their life into these two parts. And the Bible would say there is no distinction, that your whole life is sacred. 
that your working life, that every part of your life is intended to be transformed by Christ. Just as he is the Lord of your life as you sing, worship to him today, this evening, he's the Lord of your life as you're sitting at your computer screen on Monday morning. And interestingly, look at the passage, the, the, the expectation of how their lives will be changed as part of their repentance. He tells tax collectors, what should we do? Collect no more than you are authorized to do so. He tells soldiers, what should we do? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. He's saying to the tax collectors, if you've really changed your life, if you've really repented, then you'll no longer collect more than, you're, than you should. Because at the time, it was kind of, you got a tax collector gig, and you didn't just collect what the Romans wanted you to collect, but you collected more than that as a way of feathering your own nest. It's kind of corruption, extortion. The soldiers are kind of doing the same thing. They're using their power and their strength in a society that has probably less rule of law um, to extort and and bully money out of others. And John is saying, if you've really repented, you're not going to look like that anymore. You're going to be different. You're not going to be the kind of soldier that you were before. You're not going to be the kind of tax collector you are before. And so the same imperative is to you. As you find yourself at work Monday morning, saying if you've really repented, if you've really surrendered your life to Christ, then your whole working life will look different. Your whole working life will look different. You will work differently. Christ should transform every area of your life, including how you work. Well, you might say, how? How does Christ change my working life? Well, he starts by changing the motivation for work. Before you went to work seeking to make a name for yourself, seeking to justify your existence and prove your worth by the the quality of what you produced. Now, as you follow Christ in your workplace, you no longer work for your human um, boss. Well, you don't ignore them, but but ultimately you work for your ultimate boss, which is Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Work for heartily as for the Lord and not for men. As you worked this week, and it might feel really mundane, you can do that work for the living God. You can do it as an act of worship to him. You can dedicate it. Before you work, you say, God, I dedicate this to you. Let me, do, let me make something beautiful, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet or PowerPoint slides. Am I showing my age? Is that people still work on Excel and PowerPoint? Um, <laughs> my point is, make something beautiful for the glory of God. Whatever context you find yourself in, you can glorify God in your work. It changes your motivation for work. It changes the way you interact with your colleagues. You're no longer using sharp elbows to kind of jostle your way to the top or prove your uh, worth. Instead, you're seeking to honor your colleagues. Think about how Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12 to outdo one another in showing honor. It means you're the colleague who is celebrating the contributions of the people around you, who is lifting up others and outdoing your colleagues in showing honor, honoring the contributions of your colleagues, treating your colleagues with love and dignity, not allowing yourself to be swept up into the office gossip or bitterness or resentment towards your colleagues, but instead operating with the love of Christ, putting to death those feelings that might bubble up inside you and instead choosing to love your colleagues and to be distinctive. Imagine if everyone here was to take that call seriously. Imagine if the thousands of Christians who work in London every day were to take seriously the call to be a distinctive presence in their workplaces. It wouldn't be long before people start to say, well, they're different and they're different and they're both Christians. And isn't that interesting that Christ seems to make them really nice people or, or whatever it is. 
I've told you before, maybe some of you, my, my dad's not a Christian, and he sometimes spends time around our leaders. Uh, we've had a, a, a residential uh, with some of our leaders in, in the autumn in, near where my parents live. And my dad comes, sometimes comes and spends time with them. And he says afterwards, they're religious lunatics, but they're such nice religious lunatics. <laughs> There's a sense to which even the character that he observes in the people in our church, like, draw him. He's not drawn to Christ, you can hear that. He still thinks we're religious lunatics. But there's something in the character that he can see in people that draws him even a tiny bit towards Christ. I would hope that your colleagues would see that, some distinctive in you, distinctiveness in you, as you take your approach to work radically different. So your repentance must affect the secular parts of your life. Finally, your repentance must be comprehensive. Notice in verse 14 of Luke chapter 3, when he's talking to the soldiers, he says, be content with your wages. He's saying, as you surrender your life, as you turn your life around, it's not just your actions that must be changed, it must be your heart. Contentment is a posture of the heart. It's what's going on in your mind. Repentance must not just shape what you do, but how you feel and your desires and your thought life. (laughs) Your, and your, the thoughts that nobody else sees, that Christ comes to have dominion over every part of you, and including your inner life. Why? Because transformation begins in the mind. In Romans 12, Paul exhorts us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's saying the way you think needs to change. But as you allow Christ to come in and reshape your mind, you will be transformed as you allow him to renew your mind. Saying repentance, saying this idea of comprehensive surrender must mean allowing Christ to come in and reshape your thoughts and your desires. He says, don't tolerate thinking and desires that you know aren't right. A willingness to replace bitterness with love. A willingness to replace self-pity with gratitude. To exchange even the desire for sin, which will bubble up within you, for the desire for holiness. In Titus chapter 2, Paul describes how Christ came that he might create a people who are eager, eager to do what is good. Is there a genuine desire to be good in your life? If not, ask God to come and change your heart. Are there persistent thought patterns that don't honor Christ? Lies that you're believing? Self-hatred? Anxiety? Lustful thoughts towards someone? The presence of such thoughts is not a sign that you're not a Christian. And even sometimes we condemn, oh, I'm feeling anxious. You condemn it. It's not, I don't want you to be condemning yourself because you experience these thoughts. My question is, what will you do with that thought? Because I think to be repentant, to be surrendering, means saying to Christ, I'm going to choose to not think that way. And I know that's a big, there's a lot there. And that's a lifelong battle, a daily battle for some of us. But it means a willingness to reshape your mind and not to think in the ways of the world, not to think with these lies, and to allow Christ to reshape how you see yourself and how you see the world. Repentance means surrendering your mind and your heart. One more thought on this idea of repentance. Incomplete repentance is no repentance at all. A willingness to repent means a willingness to give Christ everything. In Isaiah 58, they are speak, it, it, it describes the problem where the people of God are fasting, but God doesn't hear their fast. He says, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Basically, God, why are you not responding to our fasting? 
And then this is the response. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. You fast. You go through the religious motions of depriving yourself of food. That's, that's a big deal for some of you. Um, but on the other hand, you oppress your workers. There's an inconsistency in your life. That's not true repentance. True repentance is about willingness to give him every area of your life. Notice he doesn't respond to their prayers. It's a warning. Some of you know you have unconfessed sin in your life that you're tolerating, that you kind of know is wrong, but you keep doing it. Repentance means getting rid of anything and everything that offends Christ, to break it off with an urgency. It means total surrender. That is the call of repentance that John is giving us. However, the mere choice to obey Christ is not enough. John's call to repentance is not enough to change you. You need Christ's presence and work in your heart. Just as John is giving us a challenge, an exhortation here, you must hear the hope that John is giving us. And what is that hope? Well, it's found at the end of the passage. The baptism in the Spirit. John's conviction is you it is not enough that you simply take away the conviction that I need to change. Instead, you need to be comforted by the hope of the fact that you have been filled with the Spirit. John knows that his call to repentance isn't the whole picture. His baptism of repentance will be followed by Jesus coming to baptize his followers with the Spirit. So welcoming Christ, surrendering your life to Christ, means welcoming the presence and power of the Holy Spirit into your life. Surrendering to the Spirit. Are you inviting the ongoing work of the Spirit in your life? Notice how John responds in this passage when he's asked, are you the Messiah? John's response, verse 16, he answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So my baptism isn't enough. Just making a choice to repent isn't enough. You need to be filled to be baptized with the Spirit. And that will only come when Christ comes to fill you with his Spirit. Later on in Acts 19, a very similar moment occurs where Paul meets some Christians in Ephesus. And he says to them, were you baptized with into Christ? Were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? And and they respond, no, we were baptized with the baptism of John. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Saying John's baptism of repentance wasn't enough. You need to be baptized into Christ. It's easy to hear this great exhortation, this great call to repentance and think, right, I need to go and change my life. I could clean myself up. And the world is full of voices of moralism, voices that tell you exactly that. Do better. Be cleaner. I mean, literally, live cleaning. Not, I mean, hopefully most people around you aren't telling you to be cleaner. You're already clean physically. All sorts of voices telling you to take responsibility or be kinder. Moral exhortations to change ourselves. In fact, that's why many people feel exhausted. They feel exhausted with these constant 
imperatives to change themselves. Some of you might feel exhausted. Actually, you need to see that Christianity is not moralism. There's a radical difference. That Christianity includes many different exhortations to follow Christ in different ways in your life. But it can never just be reduced to a set of moral commands. In fact, to be a Christian is to start from the place of recognizing that we are unable to change ourselves. In fact, that's why many of us came to Christ, because we were weary of those, our own attempts to change ourselves and to feeling the fruitlessness of that. That's why I think Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all who are weary of trying to change themselves, of trying to follow man-made religion, of self-improvement cycles. Instead, come to me and receive my easy yoke. What you must see is that it's not just that Christ commands repentance to us, but instead he invites us to receive him. He enters into our lives. He joins himself to us. We have a change of status. We become children of the living God. We become washed clean, forgiven saints. We have a new identity, a new place in the family. We're united to God. We're united to Christ. And with that union, with that new status of children of God, we receive the Holy Spirit. When he's talking about being baptized with the Spirit, I believe he's talking about the giving of the Spirit that comes at new birth. As, you are, as you've surrendered your life to Christ, as you open yourself up to him and you believe in him, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the problem is we, we just don't really think much about that. And we certainly don't grasp the significance of that. That the gift of the Holy Spirit is meant to give us a hope for change. That is the basis by which we believe that we can be transformed, that we can allow God to work in us. It means the command for change in the Christian life is not work harder, but actually an invitation to come and be filled by the Spirit. It's not just something we receive at conversion. We continue to draw near to God and allow us to change him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize the significance of what it means to be filled with the Spirit? Do you see the significance, even the dignity of what it means to be filled by the Spirit? This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The living God has come to make his home in you. That you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A new sense of dignity. A new power for change that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul speaks about the presence of the Spirit being the basis by which we believe that we can be changed. But he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law saying, look, you have desires of the flesh. You have desires in you that are opposite to Christ's intention for your life, but you have the Holy Spirit in you. And the basis of that Holy Spirit means you are no longer controlled by the enslaving power of sin. 
Have you woken up to that reality that you are no longer slaves? That's why Jono read to us, I believe, in the worship time earlier, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the controlling power of sin. Some of you, you feel like a slave to sin. Some of you hear these great exhortations, these calling to, to surrender every part of your life, and you feel weak and unable to become the man or woman that God intends you to be. You need to hear that he's put his spirit in you. That by the power of the spirit, you do not need to gratify the desires of the flesh. And actually, by the power of the spirit, he intends to grow his fruit But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you feel free? Because you are free. You are free from the controlling power of sin. So choose to walk in step with the Spirit. Not try harder, but be filled. There's an instruction in the New Testament again and again to be filled with the Spirit. It's not just that we receive the Spirit once at conversion. There's an ongoing call to draw near to Christ and to surrender to him and invite the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And I'm so convinced that we do not take hold of that promise. We do not take hold of the invitation that God would make to pour out his Spirit on us. That's why in Acts 19, after they're baptized into Jesus, Paul lays his hand and prays that they were filled in the Spirit and they are filled with the Spirit and there's prophecy and tongues and and worship and they're built up and strengthened by the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul instructs the church, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. Not you have been filled, you have been filled at conversion, but be filled. There's an ongoing instruction in the Christian life to draw near to Christ and ask him to fill you and to change you by his spirit. And why don't we do this? Two reasons. One, complacency. Complacency, a lack of appetite, a lack of hunger for God, a lack of desire for his work in us. We do not have because we do not ask. But the second is that we do not really like surrendering to God. We actually rather like to follow our agendas. That to invite the work of the Spirit has to be with a surrender, with a willingness to yield every part of our lives to him. This is how one, one author, uh, one pastor author, a guy called Simon Ponsonby, pastor based in Oxford, described the problem of not wanting to yield our life to God. He said, we want to be in control. We want to be Lord. We want to indulge the flesh. We do not want to be to witness and work for Christ. We want God on our terms and conditions. We do not want him interfering, going where he's not welcome. We want him to serve us, not us to serve him. We want to ask him for things, not him to ask us. The unyielded heart will never know and grow in God. And this is really, I think this is really pertinent. The church is full of saved but stunted spiritual pygmies. The church is full of saved but stunted spiritual pygmies. The person who would be filled with the Spirit must relinquish all rights. The Spirit must have free reign through our whole lives. Do you desire more of God? Then yield to him. Brother or sister, do you desire more of God? 
Do you recognize your own weakness? Do you recognize that you need more of the living God to change you? Do you lack joy? If you lack joy, draw near to God. Ask him to come in and shape your heart. Ask him to come and reveal more of the sense that he is your heavenly father. That's why it talks about Romans 8. By, by the Spirit, by the presence of the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. There's a longing, a joy in us as we experience the work of the Holy Spirit that reminds us that we are the children of God. You do not have because you do not ask. I'm convinced this is such a challenge for the church today. That we do not long and invite and hunger, hunger after the work of God in our hearts to reshape us as the people of God. Welcoming Jesus requires us to surrender to the Spirit's work in our lives. Have we forgotten the power for the Christian life that God has placed within us? Have we forgotten the power for the Christian life that God has placed within us? And finally, what would John say? How are we to be changed? Or at his majesty. Do you see the greatness of the Messiah? John's urgent willingness, his desire not only to surrender his life to Christ, but also to call others to surrender their lives to Christ, is because he is deeply aware of Jesus' majesty. In order to be willing to surrender to Jesus and also to be those who call others to surrender themselves to him, we, like John, need to be constantly, continually overwhelmed by his majesty. Can you see John's vision, John's vision of the majesty of Christ in this passage? When he's asked if he's the Messiah, he says, no, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Imagine, he's saying, I'm not unworthy even to untie Jesus' sandals. I'm not worthy to serve him, even in the smallest servant's task. Such is his majesty. This is what makes John such an urgent and fiery preacher, is the great and glorious vision of Christ that looms at the end of the horizon, that drives John on with an urgency to confront his culture, even to confront Herod later on about his misdeeds, comes from John's great, glorious vision of the Christ who he is calling the nation towards. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He is the one who comes with Holy Spirit and fire. All I can do is call you to God, John would say, and I would say the same. It is he who comes with Holy Spirit and fire. He is the one who can change your hearts. He is the one who comes with the winnowing fork, who comes to separate wheat from chaff. He is the one who comes both with the true vision of your heart, who can see the reality of who you are and can only be the right judge of your life, and he is the one who has the authority to separate some to eternal life with God and some to eternal death, eternal separation from God. The Bible calls hell. That he alone is the one who has the power over life and death and has the power to judge the living and the dead. Do we have something of John's awe? Something of his fear of the living God? Even fear of judgment. It's not wrong for a Christian to see the power of judgment that rests in Jesus' hands and to feel a sense of awe at him. We have to have that sense of awe. 
Because it's that sense of awe that will, that will mean that we are just forced to our knees that says, I must surrender my life to you when I see your great majesty. It's that sense of awe that will lead us out to call our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues to Christ and kind of not worry about the consequence. To, be, to kind of not care what people think of us when we see the great majesty of Christ. Say, I must, I must tell people about this glorious king. We need to see God in all his glory. Time and again, you see in the Bible, as men and women see this great, glorious vision of who God is, they are changed. Think about Isaiah 6. He has this prophetic vision in the temple as he sees the living God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. And at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. If you were to see the real vision, a visible image of the living God, you would have that same response. In fact, as we open the Bible and we read God's word and we invite the Spirit to work in our hearts, we also want to see a a great tangible vision of the glory of God. And as we do that, we are changed. We are changed as we gaze on the glory of God. This is, speaks to the deepest longings of our hearts. We were made to feel awe and wonder. It's why you enjoy a beautiful sunset or an incredible view or a starry sky at night or even a, a fine work of art or a, a beautiful meal. There's something about glory that draws our attention. There's something that you enjoy the sharp intake of breath as you see something glorious. And it points to the fact that you are made for worship. You are made to have awe and wonder at the great, glorious creator who stands behind every beautiful thing, who stands behind the creative majesty that you drink in and and wonder at, who stands behind it all. He was the one that your heart was made to awe at, to made to wonder at, to made to glory in and to worship We need to see that image of God every day as we open scripture, as we pray, as we invite God to come in into our hearts and to reveal himself to us. That was a prophetic vision of Isaiah. God revealed that to him. As we gaze at the glory of God, we are transformed. We're transformed to those who naturally surrender, say, I can but bow when I see your glory. We're transformed to be those who say, I must, I must tell people about that glorious king. Think about how Jesus, the glorious king through whom everything was made through him, who's gloriously self-controlled, gloriously courageous, gloriously pure of heart, gloriously triumphant over the grave, gloriously enthroned at the right hand of the Father. When you see that glory, you think, I must I must tell people about him. We feel a natural urgency like John to call the people around us to surrender to Christ, to welcome him in, just as we have welcomed him into our lives. So we need to have that same sense of awe 
as John to compel others to live in a posture of perpetual worship and surrender and to do that ourselves. And so take this together. I want you to see the challenge that John is laying before us. To be a people who are comprehensively surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, who are constantly willing and inviting Christ to come in and reshape their very being, to make active steps to die to what offends Christ in our lives, to live with a posture of complete surrender. Those who are empowered by the Spirit, saturated by the presence of God, those who rejoice in the reality of being temples of the Holy Spirit and who are regularly, repeatedly surrendering to the Spirit's work, asking Him to come in and change them, asking Him for more power, more strength, more filling, who are surrendering themselves to the Spirit's work in their lives, and those who are in awe of the majesty of Christ, who see his winnowing fork and his power, and are constantly overwhelmed by the great King who's entered into their lives. That is what the posture that John lives, a posture of complete surrender, and that is the posture that he's calling us to. Will you surrender with me? Will you surrender everything to him? Will you invite his work comprehensively into your life? This is the Christian life. But it also starts today. As Daniel began our service, the only day that the Lord gives to repent is today. Tonight, we have an opportunity to comprehensively surrender our lives to Christ again. To allow him, to invite him to come and work into the depths of who we are. To come and reshape us by his spirit. To come and glory his majesty together. You will know there are things in your life that you need to repent of. But I don't want you to focus on just that individual thing that maybe the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on. I want us just to come together now and to comprehensively surrender our lives to him again. You may want to kneel as we pray. I'd encourage you now just to come and join me in this posture of surrender, if you can. This isn't about pretense, not about showing the people around us any kind of response. It's about just responding to God in your hearts.